This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, extending automation to the ends of the Air Force. One of the RPA projects that we're working on right now is to try to find a way to employ RPA technologies to automate the PCS process inbound and outbound. I just heard an audible gasp from parts of the room. And House Armed Services digs in on the Navy's cyber specialization. Not having the specialization here has allowed some of those skills to be deprioritized. There's some concerns about the overall readiness of this force. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The House Armed Services Committee may push the Navy to reorder its cyber personnel. The House version of the National Defense Authorization Act includes a provision for the Navy to create a designator for cyber. More detail on this later in the program. Two companies will get $36 million each through another transaction authority to build prototypes for the Army. Palantir and Raytheon will build competing prototypes for the Tactical Intelligence Targeting Access node. That project will help warfighters collect and integrate data on the battlefield. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The Air Force is finding compelling use cases for automation all over its operations. Winston Beauchamp is the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Air Force. He says his service isn't looking at automation to cut the number of airmen it needs. We realize that our mission set is growing and continues to grow. Uh, But we're not going to get more billets. We're not getting more civilians. We're not getting uh, more military uh, uniform folks. Uh, But we are going to continue to be asked to do more and more with the resources that we have. And so in order to take on those new missions and continue to adapt to the technologies and challenges that we face in an ever-evolving world, we need to be able to make much better use of the people that we have. So there's really two reasons that we're employing uh, AI. The first is to make your decisions faster. And here, for this example, I'll use uh, uh, um, uh, an instance from... Uh, my history. Uh, so prior to joining the Air Force, I worked, uh, spent a couple days, yeah, decades in the intelligence community and uh, working for a, a number of agencies, but it's mostly one called NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And one of the uh, targets that we always had from an AI perspective, the holy grail for AI in, in NGA was automated target recognition. And that means being able to look at Uh, images, either still images or video, to identify targets and queue them up to our our customers in the the military. And um, over time, it became clear uh, that using the the assisted mode was the best way to go about it, as opposed to trying to fully automate that process because of the number of of false positives that could emerge. But that's okay, because in assisted mode, uh, instead of having an analyst have to examine you know, tens or even hundreds of square nautical miles to find, find targets. It could, we could use these tools to queue up potential targets. And then the analyst, the human analyst, would only have to look at those areas that were queued up by the, by the system. Uh, this is a revolutionary approach to one that traditionally had been very manually intensive. And so if we can identify those potential targets, bring it to the analyst quickly, then she can look at them and identify which ones are real and forward them on in a much more timely way. The second purpose is to make those decisions better. All of us know that the human brain is limited 
It's terrific at doing many, many things, but retaining large quantities of information in its original form is not one of them. And so they, we can make sense of that data, uh, but retaining it until the point where it can be used to make sense is something that we're not great at, but machines are. And so to the extent that we can identify the attributes that you're looking for and allow a very large scale database to hold that information for you while you apply different algorithms against it is certainly something that a, uh, that a machine can help humans, help humans do. So you might say to yourself, why is the deputy CIO talking about AI instead of the uh, chief data officer? And um, well, I want to talk a little bit about the connection between our enterprise architecture activities and our data and AI activities. So from my perspective, there's many elements of the enterprise IT stack that are both necessary uh, and critical to the delivery of key AI capabilities. AI doesn't pop out of nowhere. It lives, has to live somewhere. And we always talk, spend a lot of time talking about the application layer, and that's absolutely critical. The algorithms that are used uh, within IT systems in order to perform some operation on the data. There's the platform layer, uh, and the example here that I'll use for uh, the Air Force is Platform One. Basically, a development layer, layer that provides developers the tools that they need to train those models. There's the data layer itself. So if, if data is the lifeblood of AI, then the data layer, the data fabric, is the system of <clears throat> veins and arteries and the heart that pumps that data around the body. And the compute layer. So you need to have an enterprise capability to operate upon that data, typically at machine speed, so you're trying to get very, very quick answers to problems uh, at scale. And that's a, a quick rundown of where the enterprise IT intersects with uh, the data enterprise. Inside the Department of the Air Force, we have co-located uh, our uh, data and AI office inside the CIO in order to maximize the leverage of those capabilities um, as we continue to evolve in the data space. So AI has a great deal of attention right now in, inside the Department of the Air Force. Uh, in addition to having Secretary of the Air Force attention, you may have heard him speak about this topic of late, We've also had uh, private conversations on the topic about how we are going to interact within the Department of Defense. And as you've heard this morning already, uh, Department of the Air Force is a leader in this area. If we're going to be competitive in the AI sphere in the 2027 to 2030 timeframe, when we perceive a need to be prepared to respond to a pacing threat, we have to be able to influence and inspire the US innovation mechanism in AI to respond to the needs of the Department of the Air Force. And so that's part of the reason why we're here today, to talk to our partners in industry, to understand our problem sets so that you can unleash the vast power of your workforce to focus on the problems that we see in these areas. So our Chief Data and AI Office, which is gonna stand up a directorate focused on the AI problem in particular and responsible AI in, in, in specific, is going to focus on, on five things. Our AI tech and data infrastructure, responsible AI policy and integration, AI acquisition strategy and contracts, AI S&T investment capture, and data and AI workforce development. Because none of this works if we don't have a workforce who's trained and ready to employ these new technologies. So our goal really is to ignite that focused innovation by infusing industry 
with uh, a, a, an understanding of the DAF's needs. We want to leverage and coordinate existing efforts within key DOD organizations and agencies We're by assigning liaison officers to advocate for our priorities in these organizations, rapidly identifying promising small businesses and relationships with existing technology innovators in these areas. We want to leverage the innovation and development happening within the DAF software factory ecosystem, which is probably the most mature within the DOD, and the Air Force MIT AI Accelerator. We also want to develop a fellowship program for AI that would embed promising airmen and guardians into top AI companies to learn from them and absorb some of the cultural impacts uh, that they've already become uh, more accustomed to. So really we want to divide, drive innovation into the Department of the Air Force for these key technology areas that will provide mission impact. We want to treat data as a strategic asset. This was a really big one in my one of previous life when I worked in the intelligence community for the Director of National Intelligence. The thing that clicked about collective action in the IC was when we had top-down support for the concept of data as a corporate asset, not as something that's owned by individual programs. Once you can infuse that principle, many, many opportunities for horizontal information sharing and, and, and leverage of other people's data emerge very quickly. We want to look at the opportunities for machine, human-machine teaming. You know, from a policy perspective, uh, we are, as you would imagine, very concerned about the idea of um, AI operating independently in our mission space. And so our approach is to ensure human-in-the-loop interactions through, with AIs for operational systems. We want to have a better um, uh, understanding of the use of our, of our terrain. So sensing is a huge impact for us. It's one of the key areas where we'll, we'll, we will be employing AI first. Not surprisingly, uh, a lot of our early efforts uh, so far have been in the business area, but uh, such as it ever was, if you look at our 40-year history of incorporating automation uh, into work, it usually starts there, but it doesn't stay there. And then finally, um, taking advantage of our architecture to integrate edge devices and computing and networking into the mix. So at this point, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some examples in the couple minutes I have left. See, I'm keeping track of my time to make sure I don't go over. This Goldie will not be happy with me if I do. Let's talk about a couple of examples. Uh, I mentioned the automated target recognition and that, of course, is as valid inside the Department of the Air Force as well, given the important role that the Air Force has in, um, in that mission space from both uh, uh, air and space perspective. Uh, but I also want to talk about uh, some of the things that have been particular time sucks in the life of every airman and guardian. In fact, anybody who's been in the military, uh, raise your hand if you spent time in the United States military in uniform. Hands for this. Thank you. Thank you all. And I know by the way you raised your hand that one of, the, one of your favorite things about being in the military is the process of PCSing from one base to the next, right? That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Because everybody loves the, uh, the intensely manual process and, in fact, entirely unique process of entering and leaving every base they ever worked at. Well, one of the RPA projects that we're working on right now is to try to find a way to employ RPA technologies to automate the PCS process inbound and outbound. 
I just heard an audible gasp from parts of the room. Uh, because this is an area that, that, that I think is a, is, a, is a pain point for a lot of people. It's a retention issue, frankly, when people have to wait a year for their household goods to show up, for example. Uh, or if their entire assignment goes by and they never actually get settled up when, from a uh, financial perspective on the expenses of a PCS. Th these are the sorts of things uh, that, that give people pause about, about re-enlisting or re-signing a, a contract as, a, as an officer. And so one of, these, uh, one of these projects is working to identify the common pieces across bases automate as much as you can, and then identify the unique pieces that are, that are clear in certain bases but not others, and, and put them um, only at those special locations. Uh, and, and basically make it as common an experience as possible uh, for folks so that it, you can eliminate that pain point. Uh, another has to do with the automation of the prediction of weather. This, again, something that we use uh, all the time in, in civilian life, uh, but we we don't always remember that uh, weather is a really important thing in military operations, and it doesn't always use the same data uh, that our civilian weather forecasters use. Right? By the way, anybody know what the best title in the Air Force is? It's the, Depart the Director of Weather. There's actually a guy whose job is Director of Weather. And I used to, so I used to say, you know, what weather would you like today? I'll call the director. <laughs> well. When planning military operations, the weather can be a huge determiner of success or failure. And so using AI, we've been able to enhance our weather models to take data that, where we don't have ground-based sensors to collect and extrapolate and interpolate between those, those data points to come up with weather predictions over parts of the world, call it over the oceans, over deserts, places where they're less populated, where there might more likely be military operations and uh, understand what our weather prediction might look like. And employing these technologies is going to continue to improve uh, our way of conducting operations in the future. We fully expect that we're going to continue to expand these capabilities inside the business mission area and continue to expand it inside the operational area, inside of our systems. And we depend upon this community to help us do that. Winston Beauchamp, the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Air Force. You can find a link to the video of his entire presentation in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Navy needs a dedicated cyber specialty, and the Department of Defense is looking to put its money where its mouth is diversity-wise. John Harper's managing editor of Defense Scoop, Mark Pomerlow, is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. John, I start with you. The Defense Department, you write, looking for a historically black college or university to lead a new research center focused on tactical autonomy technology for military systems. What's the department looking for here, and why are they going this route to get it? Welcome. Thanks uh, for having me on, Francis. The uh, specific focus area for this initiative is uh, they're going to be setting up uh, what DOD calls a university-affiliated research center uh, that, for the first time, will be led by an HBCU, and the focus is on tactical autonomy um, and uh, with a specific focus on, you know, the Air Force's interest in that. Uh, the Air Force is looking uh, at, you know, developing things like robotic wingmen uh, to accompany manned fighter jets in the battle, other AI-enabled uh, technologies for, uh, you know, command and control um, and other aspects of their mission set. So this is definitely a big uh, technology focus area uh, for the Air Force and for the Defense Department writ large. So that's 
why there's uh, a focus on this specific area uh, for this initiative with the uh, HBCU. And another aim is to address some uh, historical uh, inequities in terms of uh, Pentagon R&D funding for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, so um, it, it's really sort of a, you know, a two pronged uh, uh, aim here. Uh, one for new technologies that the US military uh, could acquire um, and employ and the other is to uh, uh, address uh, Long-standing equity issues. The money here is twelve million dollars from the Air Force for five years to fund uh, twelve million a year for five years to fund the research, and uh, also two million dollars a year coming from the uh, Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, and uh, from the Office of Acquisition and Sustainment. Um, is that big, small, neutral in terms of some of these other fourteen? Uh, affiliated research centers on which the DOD spends money? Um, well, certainly within the context of the DOD budget, you know, it's a very small amount. Uh, you know, the Defense Department gets over $700 billion a year for its total enterprise, not R&D specifically. Um, but these uh, university affiliated research centers kind of vary in size. I think some of the historical players um, are getting more funding on that. I haven't seen uh, or I haven't yet received a specific funding breakdown from the Department of Defense um, in that regard. Uh, but they're hoping to use this money to, uh, you know, seed some uh, long-term uh, technology development, boost the STEM workforce. Um, so, uh, you know, and also this is historic in the sense that this will be the first time that uh, one of these uh, university-affiliated research centers will be led uh, by an HBCU. You write, the Pentagon aims to pick the winner through the through a competitive process and have the new center up and running by the end of the year. That sounds like a pretty aggressive timeline. Yeah, absolutely. I think here in the coming weeks, uh, the Pentagon's going to be reaching out uh, to some of these HBCUs uh, to you know explain the program and engage their interest. Um, and then they'll be receiving nominations uh, I believe through mid-October, um, and then as you noted, you know, by the end of the year, uh, pick a winner and try to get that up and running. So certainly, uh, you know, by DOD standards, that's a, a pretty aggressive timeline. Mark Pomerlo, uh, you're reporting that the House Armed Services Committee would like the Navy to create a singular and special work role dedicated to cyberspace matters. And you report that the HASC is willing to play hardball with the service to get it to do so. What's in the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act that, uh, that, that indicates that the HASC wants to do that, Mark? Welcome. Uh, thanks, Francis. Yeah, so in the uh, House Armed Services passed NDAA, as you mentioned, uh, there's a provision there that's actually directing the Navy to create uh, a specific cyber work role. Now, uh, up until now, uh, the Navy's the only service that doesn't have a specific dedicated work role for its cyber warriors. Uh, it's basically up until this point resourced all of its cyber warriors from uh, its cryptologic field. Uh, there's a couple other fields in there as well, but primarily it's cryptologic field, which um, includes signals, intelligence, electronic warfare and cyber. Uh, so the HASC has been concerned about readiness issues involved with the Navy cyber enterprise, stemming from the fact that it doesn't have a specific focus area for its cyber workforce. Uh, so that's kind of the origin behind this provision here. And um, 
they're actually charging that by 2024, if if the Navy doesn't do this, that they can't use uh, those cryptologic uh, warfare officers to source their cyber folks as a means to get the Navy uh, on board with this proposal. All right. Uh, the devil's advocate there, one of them that you quote in your story that's up on fedscoop.com now is uh, Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired. He's been a guest on this program a number of times. And she makes this point. Cyber effects has to be baked into all of the elements that you just mentioned and all of the cyber operations. And she'd, she has said similar things like that uh, on this program before. Um, what's your sense of why the Hask is so set on doing it this way and why they think the Navy needs to conform to the way that the other services have approached this? Sure. And, you know, uh, I'm a retired Barrett makes a really interesting point. Um, Obviously, uh, this is part of a larger information warfare set. We've seen adversaries of the United States organize under this banner, including cyberspace with intelligence, uh, information operations, electronic warfare. Uh, The United States military has followed suit and and cyber is really just one small piece of this larger information warfare puzzle. I think um, where the Hask has, has some of its concerns is that not having the specialization here has allowed some of those skills to be uh, deprioritized. There's some concerns about the overall readiness of this force because individuals have to cycle out in order to get experience in some of these other disciplines uh, that I mentioned, signals intelligence, electronic warfare and the like. Uh, They're really worried that the Navy isn't building the expertise that it needs both for the on keyboard people as well as uh, some of the top echelons of their leadership. Um, I I referenced there that a lot of the top admirals in top Navy jobs right now come from aviation backgrounds, not cyber. You uh, report that the Senate Armed Services Committee has not yet released its version of its NDAA, so we don't know what this could wind up looking like. A house can say any, write it, anything it wants, but until it goes to conference and we see a finished product, it still remains to be seen what this will wind up looking like. Is that a fair observation on my part? Right, yes. Um, now, some sources have indicated that uh, the Senate side is worried about this too. Now, to the extent that they're willing to actually force the Navy to create a specific uh uh, cyber work role um, is still yet to be seen. You know, others that I spoke to said that this is kind of an extreme step for Congress to be directing the service to do something so specific. And, and some had, had said that this really shouldn't be Congress's role either. So um, as you said, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens in, in the conference. This might not end up being law, but um, certainly um, Congress's uh, uh, issues have been raised here and, and have been kind of put out publicly for, for all, including the Navy to see. I think this is can be seen as, as, at least on the House side, them putting the Navy on blast right now and saying that um, to date their efforts haven't been enough and uh, it was time for the Congress to, to do something. It's great detail and great reporting in your story and, and also in yours, John. Uh, Mark, what do you have uh, planned coverage-wise in the week ahead? What are you paying attention to? Sure. So um, later this week, uh, there'll be an event at the Hudson Institute, a, a think tank here in Washington, focused on uh, electromagnetic superiority. We'll have we'll hear from uh, a few speakers at, at the OSD level as well as uh, the Air Force 
Um, and they'll be talking about various efforts associated with the Department of Defense trying to get itself on a, on a stronger footing from the electromagnetic spectrum perspective. It's been uh, an incredibly important area in recent years. And as, as we continue to transition into great power competition, uh, will be a key modernization area um, in terms of um, competing with these sophisticated adversaries here. John, what's uh, on your radar screen in the week ahead? I'm uh, keeping an eye on what's happening uh, with the NATO summit uh, over in Madrid. Uh, this uh, is shaping up to be a very consequential one. Uh, NATO is expected to release a new strategic concept uh, for the first time in more than a decade. And uh, sources have told me that emerging tech uh, is going to play uh, a big role in that. Um, uh, you know, also technologies like cyber and space. Um, and uh, there's also uh, expected to be more of a focus on China in this one than in, in previous years. Obviously, Russia is still a very big focus, uh, but the Pentagon now considers China to be a, a bigger threat than Russia. So it's eager to get European allies to uh, you know, focus more of their uh, defense efforts uh, in terms of trying to deter China and uh, be better prepared for you know, any potential uh, conflict in that uh, Indo-Pacific region. Um, so, uh, you know, those are definitely two key developments uh, I'm going to be watching and uh, certainly looking to see what specific um, emerging technologies uh, are noted in this new strategic concept. And we're also uh, expecting to hear more details about a 1 billion euro innovation fund uh, that's going to be used to invest in some of these emerging technologies. So there's some serious money there. Um, and, and that document could certainly shape NATO investments for years to come. John Harper, Mark Pomerlow, Defense Scoop team. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about all these stories and see Mark's and John's coverage throughout the week with the links in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks very much for listening.